Well, please do have your Bibles open at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in the name of our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a well-known story that uh, last century, um, the Times newspaper sent out an inquiry to, to many authors asking the question, what is wrong with the world? They asked the great, they asked the wise, and they got many replies that they published in their paper. And everybody wanted to parse out what's wrong with the world. Poverty, sickness, disease, natural disasters, politicians. They got one response from G.K. Chesterton who wrote this. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Well, that's the answer. What's wrong with the world? I am. And in many ways, that's what Paul wants to argue here in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. We're going to have another one of Paul's answer, a question and answer sessions. And it's clear from the questions that he now anticipates from his hearers that they think he disparages the law. And Paul's simple rebuttal is going to be this. It's not the law that's the problem. It's you that's the problem. It's me that's the problem. What's the problem with this world? It's us. Now, because Paul needs to defend himself against these accusations, Paul wants to make really clear before he moves on to talk about the inner battle that takes place within the Christian, he wants to make really clear what is the purpose of the law? What does it exist for? So, so we've been released from the law. Now Paul wants all of his readers to know, listen, you need to know the purpose of the law. And when you know the purpose of the law, here's what you'll have. You'll have a great respect for the law of God. Now, I've made passing comment uh, last week to this fact, and I'll make it again next week. Let me just make it this week again. In this section, Paul is going to speak a lot of himself. I, I, I. And a lot of ink has been spilt by commentators and scholars. Who's the I? Is it Paul speaking as a Christian or is it Paul speaking as a non-Christian? In this section we're looking at tonight, for the most part, Paul speaking from his non-Christian experience. At least that's what I'm convinced of and I'll tell you what I think next week when we come to next week's passage. This passage, um, he speaks of what happened to him before he came to Christ. Let's look at verse 7. Here's the question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law bad? Is the law evil? That's what they were all saying. Paul, are you saying, you know, if we had to die to the law? Are you saying if the law is what causes us, arouses us to sin? Are you saying the law is bad? Paul's answer, by no means. No, God forbid that anyone would ever think that the law is sin, that the law is evil. Now listen to Paul as he goes on. Here's the first purpose of the law. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. First thing Paul wants us to note regarding the purpose of the law is this. It reveals sin to us. It exposes our sin. 
just not the past tense. Yet if I had not, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not, I would not have known sin. He's speaking in the past tense because he's speaking about his pre-converted state. The law, when he was not converted to Christ, made known sin to him. This assertion of Paul's nothing new in the book of Romans. He said back in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in this section, Paul's concerned to show you and I that he came to know the purpose of the law through personal experience with the law. He came to know personally that the law unmasks and exposes sin. Look at verse 8. For, or, or verse eight, for, for, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, I was thinking about how to explain this verse, but some of you weren't here for this, so I'm going to tell you, here's the application for this verse. If you want to understand this verse a bit more better, and if you weren't here for Sinclair Ferguson, go and listen to his sermon, right? If you remember Sinclair Ferguson, if you were here, his sermon was a thesis saying this. We often think of Paul's conversion as a Damascus Road experience. But actually, if you look at the evidence that's presented to us in the New Testament, there's all these little hints all over the place that suggest to us that Paul actually came to know the Lord after a series of things took place in his life, and they centered on one particular individual, Stephen. And what happened was when Paul in, met Stephen and interacted with Stephen, something inside of him was awakened. And it was a sin of covetousness. He came to see in Stephen that he had something that Paul didn't have. And, and the law, thy shall not covet, hit home hard to Paul. And so Sinclair's argument was, he reckons that Paul's conversion experience came about through many things, but not least through him being convicted of his sin of covetousness because he saw that Stephen had something he did not have and he wanted it. Now, let me just make it really clear. Paul, before he ever met Stephen, having grown up as a Jew, he knew the difference between right and wrong. But at that moment in his life, when he met Stephen, the conviction of sin took place. And he was exposed for his own sinful heart. The law revealed his sin to him. Now, some of you might not know why Sinclair Ferguson's thesis is a huge deal, but if you were to go and read all the commentators of old, the main argument or the main illustration they would give is, you know the rich young ruler? The old argument is that's Paul. And Robert was preaching this morning and he said, you know, one of the brilliant things about Jesus when he, he speaks to people about the commandments is that Jesus speaks to people individually in their situation, knowing their struggles, knowing their idols, knowing their life story, and he brings his law to bear upon it. So remember what he said to the rich young ruler? Go sell all that you've got. In other words, this young Richard Miller said, how, how shall we inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded, well, have you kept the law? He said, yeah, I've kept the law. Okay, let's see if you've kept the law. Go sell all you've got. 
you know what he's breaking? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you know what, also, what else he was breaking? Thou shall not covet. And so all the commentators say, maybe the rich young ruler was Paul. But actually, examine the New Testament evidence, and there's overwhelming evidence to say perhaps, maybe Romans 7, Paul's own pre-converted testimony, and all the other little pieces that Sinclair brought together indicate that what God really used wasn't just that conversation, if, it was, if he was that rich young ruler, but it was his interactions with Stephen. The law revealed sin to Paul. Maybe I can illustrate it like this, just different illustration. The law is like an x-ray machine. You know what an x-ray machine does? You go under it for what purpose? To have revealed that there is something wrong or okay in you, but often something wrong, either a break, a fracture, maybe even a tumor. And the thing about an x-ray machine is it's good. And what it does actually is good. It reveals the problem that will drive you and the doctors to seek a remedy. The law, brothers and sisters, it's good. It reveals to us sin. But next Paul says, okay, reveals this sin. Here's the second purpose you need to know what the law does. It provokes sin. You heard me rightly. It provokes sin. Now you might say, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you on the one hand say the law is good because it reveals sin, and then in the next breath say, well, the law provokes sin. It excites sin. Well, that's what Paul said back in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is what we said. Sin in us uses the law to provoke more sin in us. So the, the, the silly illustration I gave last week was, see a sign that says, on the grass, do not walk. And all of us want to walk in the grass. The law provokes us. We want to give ourselves to wrongdoing. Do you know from the very beginning, this is a problem that has plagued humanity. What was the problem with our first parents in the Garden of Eden? They wanted to do that which was forbidden. And ever since then, so too have you and I. And you know, the problem is not the law. The problem is sin in you and in me. But sin, verse 8 starts with, sin. Now, sin is, the, is this provocative power in that it uses the law to lead us into more and more sin. There's a perversity in our hearts. Do you know what that word perversity means? Perversity is a desire to do something for no other reason than because it is forbidden. It is, a, it is joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. Paul says when the command, when we hear the command of God, our native perversity is stirred up and it takes over. 
I've used Augustine as an illustration in the past, so let me use Augustine as an illustration again. He tells a story in his confessions. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, loaded with fruit, that was attractive, neither to look at nor to taste. Late one night, a band of ruffians, myself included, went off to shake down the fruit and carry it away. For we'd continued our games out of doors until well after dark, as was our pernicious habit. We took away an enormous quantity of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but simply to throw them to the pigs. Perhaps we ate some of them, but our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. It was not the pears that my unhappy soul desired. I had plenty of my own, better than those, and I only picked them so that I might steal. For no sooner had I picked them than I threw them away and tasted nothing in them but my own sin, which I relished and enjoyed. We were tickled to laughter by the prank we'd played, because no one suspected us of it although the owners were furious. Now, what is fascinating is that when Augustine recalls this story from when he was young and when he stole pears from this vineyard that was next to him, he actually goes on in his confessions to, to take it a bit further, to, to explain the sin that is underneath the sin. He, he, he explains in his confessions, in essence, what is the essence of sin? So, so what he goes on, and, and if you've ever read through Augustine's Confessions, you know it's like a, it's a conversation to God. So this is what he says back to God. In a perverse way, all men want to imitate you, God. What then was it that I loved in that theft of mine? In what way, awkwardly and perversely, did I imitate you, my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law unpunished? And so producing a darkened shadow of omnipotence. And this is what he says as he talks back to God. Here's the perversity of his sin. When we sin, we want to be like God. We want that feeling of being like God, omnipotence, doing whatever we want to do, feeling that we are powerfully in control, and we want that feeling with no consequences for our sin. So he did that sin, and he knew that he was not going to be punished, and it made him feel like God. According to Augustine, all of us have this deep desire in, the, in, in, our, in our hearts that we want to be like God. We want to be sovereign. And you know the problem then, if you want to be like God and you want to be sovereign, the law is an infringement on you and I being sovereign over our own lives. Because the law reminds us that you and I aren't God. The law prevents us from being able to do whatever we want to do. But here's the issue. The sin in us hates God's laws, hates the infringement. It desire, we desire to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Here's the temptation. You will be like God. 
That was the essence of the first sin. And by the way, that's the essence of all of our sin. We want to be God. We want to play God. We don't want his law to infringe on our sovereignty. But here's a tragedy. The more we're exposed to the law of God, the more that our perverse hearts, that sinful force, is stirred into action. The law is not the problem. Sin in you and I is a real problem. Sin is the real culprit. Sin twists the function of the law from exposing and revealing sin to encouraging and provoking and even exciting sin. We can't blame the law for proclaiming God's will, but our perverse sinful hearts, well, they're drawn to play God. They're drawn to enjoy the pleasure of doing that which is forbidden. Can I ask you this question? Do you know that about yourself? That you're drawn to the forbidden? That you want to be God? Do you understand your own sin? Do you understand how perverse your heart is? It'll take the good law of God and it will use it so that your sinful passions will be aroused. So we've seen the, the law reveals sin, the law excites sin, encourages sin, it provokes sin. Thirdly, the law condemns sin. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Now this is where this section starts getting confusion, confusing. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Let's deal with that phrase, apart from the law, first. When was Paul ever apart from the law? He was brought, born in a very devout house, the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was never apart from the law. The law of God was taught in his home from the day he was conceived, all the way through his, his young life, his adolescent life, his teenage life. Paul was never apart from the law, but when he uses this phrase, it's most likely that he means that he had never seen the law's real or essential demands. He never really understood the law's purpose. But then he adds a strange phrase. He says he was alive apart from the law. And, and I've said, Paul is speaking about his pre-converted state. So how can you be alive apart from the law? Well, if you follow the logic that I'm taking, that Paul's arguing in his pre-converted state, I think this is referring to Paul's own self-perception. He felt that he was spiritually alive. He felt that he was pleasing to God. He felt that he was satisfying God. He's telling us that his perception was one of being alive due to his ignorance of what the law really asked for. And so then he goes on and says this, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. 
when the commandment came, that, that, that phrase there is, when the law came and accomplished its purpose in my life, it exposed my sin. I came under conviction of sin. He goes from being alive to dead. It's kind of the inversion of the way that we speak about conversion. He's saying, I thought I was alive, but I actually came because of the law to discover that I was, spiritually speaking, dead, lost, hopeless. All of us here tonight who are Christians, we've all had this experience where we came to the place where the law of God made us feel the weight of our sin. We might have thought, spiritually speaking, we're okay. We're better than most. But when the law comes, it reveals, no, 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 no. You're worse than you've ever, ever dared to give consideration of. So Paul says, listen, this is what the law did in me. It came to me and it showed me that I was condemned. The very commandment, verse 10, that promised life proved death to me. Now then in verse 11, he repeats what he said back in verse 8. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And it's because Paul says a statement so soon after it, it gets a bit confusing in the law. Paul's just saying, okay, the law condemned me. And then to explain this further, he repeats the verse 8 and he says, sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment. And he adds, do you know what sin did? It deceived me. You know what sin does to us? This, this is what it does. It deceives us every time. Every time you and I succumb to temptation, it's because we're deceived. It promises sin, satisfaction, false. Sometimes it's fleeting pleasure, fleeting satisfaction, but not true, lasting satisfaction. Sin promises us an adequate excuse, false. All of us will stand before God without excuse. Sin promises us an escape from punishment, false. If we break God's law, we stand condemned before God. One of Satan's greatest deceptions is to get us to think of sin as something good and that, that an unpleasant God wants to deprive us of. But when God gets us to think about sin, he wants us to think about it really seriously. He warns us away from sin because sin wants to kill you wants to destroy you. So here's what the law does. It exposes, it provokes, it condemns. But remember, when that provokes, it's sin in us that uses the law to provoke more sin using the law. The law in of itself is not sinful. Now, because Paul's been speaking about the fact that the law not only led him to more sin, in that sense, sin in him used the law to lead him to more sin, and then he's now said that it led him to death. All of his listeners are sitting here saying, Paul, man, you're trying to say that the law is good, but all I'm hearing is the law leads to more sin, and the law leads to death. How can that be good? So look at verse, 30, verse 12. Sorry, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. 
It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So we can be really clear, right? Verse 7, Paul says, is sin bad? That's the question. You, know, you want to know the answer in succinct? Verse 12. Is, is the law bad? Look at verse 12. No, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. So sin cannot, cannot, eh, look, the law cannot be described as bad. But is, is the law responsible for our death? Paul says, by no means. It was sin. When you understand sin, you understand it's sin that's responsible for death in me. But you know what your sinful heart does? It wants to blame the law for death. So when I was a minister in Glasgow, uh, one of the things that often came up was prison visits. It's going to visit someone who either was in our community, who had ended up in prison, or someone who was connected to our Christian community who had requested a visit from a free church minister. So the largest prison in Scotland is called Berlini. And I remember going on one occasion to Berlini to visit an individual who I knew who had been sentenced to four years in prison and had been banned from driving for 10 years. Here's what he did. He was on his phone whilst driving and in a, in a loss of a moment of concentration, he touched the accelerator and it just bumped into an old lady and she died. And so I visited him in prison and he'd had his court case. He'd been sentenced and he'd be given that verdict. Four years in prison, 10 years banned from driving. Do you know who he blamed when we were sitting across from that table for why he was in prison? The law. The law was wrong. Like, he'd only looked down at his phone. He wasn't on his phone. It wasn't dangerous driving. How, how can that be fair? It's the law that was the problem. He was furious. I am innocent. The law has got it wrong. The law's judgment's too heavy. And see, the truth is, you and I always do that without even realizing it. When we sin, we want to blame the law. By the way, that's the antinomian within us. The antinomian wants to be released from the law and the law's demands. And the antinomian wants to live as we please. Problem is, the law's not the problem. Sin's the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. But that's just one part of it. Sometimes you and I can have the other extreme, not the antinomian extreme. We use the law in a legalistic way. We use the law. We say we don't believe salvation by law keeping, but functionally we live like that is true. So we hold everybody up to the law, and when they don't measure up to the law, we condemn them. We point a finger at them. 
And when we're not keeping up the law, when we know that we're sinning in private and nobody else knows about it, our assurance is shot through, or we feel guilty, we go through the cycle, we confess our sin, we try and make it up to God, we say, God, I'll never do it again, I'll keep your law, and then we do it again, and we feel a lack of assurance and a lack of love, and it's all because we view the law wrong. The law is not the problem, it's sin in us. It's a problem. Now, you know what the problem is with either extreme, antinomian extreme or legalist extreme. And by the way, we've all got a bit of antinomianism in us and a bit of legalism in us. Like illustrated perfectly tonight when I'm driving the car, driving the car. And by the way, I knew I was going to see the sermon illustration with the guy who'd been on his phone. And then I had to look at my phone. And the temptation is you want to pick up your phone. That's antinomianism. Law doesn't apply to me. I've got a good excuse. I don't need the law right now. And then a moped flies past me going way more than 20 miles an hour. And the legalist inside of me says, how dare that guy be driving so fast? He could cause an accident. Both extremes in me. Because here's the problem. I'm so blind. I'm so deceived by my sin that I can go to both extremes and never even realize it. And in the space of minutes. When Paul writes in verse 13, does the law bring death to me? He says, no, it was a sin producing death in me through that which is good. The, the law, right, had to condemn us. It has to give a penalty. It has to give a punishment. That is the good thing. And so it has to produce death in us. But do you know the purpose of the law doing that? It's because it's trying to show us that sin might be shown as sin, meaning we need to see the seriousness of sin. And the biggest problem Paul understands with the people who he's writing to and you and I who are reading us today is we never grasp the seriousness of our sin. We are so often self-deceived. The law's to blame. Everybody else is to blame. For Adam, Eve's to blame. For Eve, the serpent's to blame. No, they were to blame. Their, their sin was to blame. Every time you sin, it's you that's to blame. And we want to blame other things. And Paul says, no, no, no. Your problem is you don't understand the seriousness of your sin. Now, here's a credible thing. Only a holy God could do. His commandment comes to us. And it exposes our sin. And we feel the weight of it and the gravity of it, and the seriousness of it. And we need a remedy. And so we run to a saviour who's mighty to save sinners. Who takes sinners who have got perverse hearts that want to play at being God, who would want to dethrone him in the one minute while saying, I praise him and exalt him who is seated upon the throne. And the same law that condemns us, he takes the, the penalty and the punishment of the law and its curse. When you grasp the sinfulness of sin, it helps you grasp the wonder of his love and grace. And one of the things that Paul's driving home in this letter again and again is, dear Christians, you're far more sinful than you've ever dared realize but when you grasp the seriousness of your sin, 
and you grasp what Jesus has done, you are far more loved than you've ever dared believe. Who, who else could love us like he loves us? Only a holy God. Paul's going to come on in the next chapter. He's now said, okay, guys, verses 1 to 6, you're released from the law. Verses 7 to 13, guys, you and I, we need a deep respect from the law. And then the next verses we'll look at next Sunday, he's going to say, now, let me explain to you what is your relationship to the law. But what you're going to have to understand is your relationship is a battle because sin will do everything it can. Even for you who is a Christian, Paul starts speaking in the present tense I, and you don't want to do that which is good, that which the law commands. The good that you should do, you do not do. And that which you should not do, you end up doing. And that's the battle of sin. Sin in the law. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you've given us the law. We're so thankful that it is holy, it is righteous, it is good. As verse 14 says, it's spiritual. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've spoken to each one of us in this room who are Christians. At one point in our lives, you've used the law, not just one point, many times in our life, to show us our sinfulness, to bring home the conviction of sin. And even as Robert was preaching this morning, maybe today your Holy Spirit wants to bring home to our hearts just how serious our sin is, the gravity of it. God, would you, would you expose us to, to sin in our life? Would you rid us of any self-deception? God, would you, would you show us how ugly and how serious it is? Cancer that is killing us, killing our spiritual lives, so that we would come to our Savior afresh, find that mercy and grace that he delights to apply so that we might go forth in joy and gratitude and in the power of your Holy Spirit to live in obedience to your law. God, we pray that as your people, we would we'd understand that we've been released from the law and we'd also understand that we are to hold a deep respect for your law as you've given it to us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.